Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, I'm Andy Olivastro, Director of Coalition Relations at the Heritage Foundation. As society opens up and economic activity returns, American history offers important lessons. I'm pleased to welcome you to Lessons from the Great Depression, the impact of government programs on the forgotten man. I'd like to welcome those joining us from our Resource Bank Network, our closest friends and allies and conservative leaders. We are used to convening in person this time of year, but we're pleased to offer this substantive discussion and expert analysis through our virtual platform. We'd like to also welcome members of the public. We're pleased to always offer public programming throughout the year at heritage.org slash events. And given how important and timely today's discussion is, we welcome all members from the public as well. This session is being recorded. It will be posted on resourcebank.org within the next 24 hours. All attendees are in listen-only mode, but we encourage you to submit your questions and do so throughout the program on the questions box on the right-hand side of your screen. We'd also like to let you know that the chat function is not operative during the program, so please use the questions box. Now I'd like to invite our two special guests to join me on the screen, Jarrett Stepman and Amity Schlaes. Invite them to turn on their cameras. Jarrett is a columnist at The Daily Signal and a co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Jarrett's also the author of the book, The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past. Welcome, Jarrett. Our special guest is Amity Schlaes. Amity is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, The Forgotten Man Graphic, a full-length illustrated version of the same book, Woolage, a full-length biography of the 13th president, and The Greedy Hand, How Taxes Drive Americans Crazy. Amity is also the author of a new book, Great Society, A New History. And in it, Amity shows that planning policy implemented in the name of the collective hurts both the nation and the individual. And that's a theme that I believe both of our guests will talk to today. Amity also chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, among many other accolades and honors, and we're pleased to are with us today. And with that, I will turn the conversation over to Jared. Well, thank you so much, Andy. Really appreciate those introductions. Uh, and thank you, Ms. Schlaes, for being here. Thank you to the audience uh, for tuning in at this time in these very unusual times when we're speaking to you, of course, uh, through these screens, through these webinars, obviously a lot of Americans dealing with these challenges. Um, but really the, the challenge that we face right now, it, it's kind of a three-part one. We, we really have the public health crisis, of course, dealing with really the worst pandemic since maybe the 1918 Spanish flu. We've got the, a foreign policy crisis, you know, how this, how this thing started when uh, in China. And of course, the topic of discussion today, which is the economic crisis, how we deal with as a society, the ongoing shutdowns, which we've all faced, the business closures and all these kind of things that uh, have been very severe. And, and obviously, many are talking about 
what those next steps are for, for the United States. And of course, if you look at right now the latest uh, jobs report numbers, uh, a lot of them are very sobering. I mean, you talk about 14.7% unemployment, many saying that those numbers are actually a lot higher than that. Uh, and certainly could go a lot higher. Uh, the labor force participation rate uh, for April was at 60.2%. Uh, it's the lowest rate in 47 years. Uh, maybe one in a bright spot is that uh, almost 90% of the, those job losses are comes from people who are temporarily laid off. Um, obviously, Congress has already taken some steps. We have we have the CARES Act. Uh, that there have already been measures to deal with this crisis, and, but others, of course, are saying that, you know, don't let this crisis go to a waste. I think uh, a really important statement recently by uh, Senate Minority Chuck Schumer on MSNBC said, we need big, bold action. We need Franklin Rooseveltian type action, and we hope to take that in the House and Senate in a very big, bold way. So many calling for what many would see as a new New Deal or a revival of the Green New Deal, which has been a proposal floating uh, out there. And yet, and yet, after all these numbers, we have to remember that in just December, I mean, really not that long ago, a lot of the economic data that we saw was very, very good. We were at 3.5% unemployment, the lowest since 1969. Uh, a lot of those factors seem to be going very well until we hit this public health crisis. So I, I think the, the very big question for you, uh, Ms. Schlaes, is, is it premature to call ourselves entering into a new Great Depression? Glad to be here. Glad to meet you all, even if it's virtually. Thank you, Jarrett. Um, it is premature to say we are going into a Great Depression. A Great Depression number, which is what that jobs number was um, does not a Great Depression make. A Great Depression and the Great Depression, um, mean great by great we mean long, right? The Great Depression was 10 years, um, is a series of policy errors. So imagine 10 years of trouble, um, a, a recovery is like a human. It makes decisions. Uh, and in the 30s, in the Great Depression, every year the recovery chose to stay away for a different reason. But we do have now a choice um, about whether we're going to have a severe downturn or a really severe downturn. Um, and our policy decisions will determine which of those we get. Absolutely. So I think one of the, the, the big, uh, certainly one of the, the mythos of the Great Depression, the New Deal, something that you addressed very well uh, in Forgotten Man, this kind of discussion about Herbert Hoover and his role in, in the Great Depression. Of course, at the time, you know, people said that there were these Hoover, Hoovervilles. Uh, a lot of this was blamed on his policy, him not taking enough aggressive action. So I, I really have kind of a, a two-part question here. A, was Hoover really a, a limited government guy and how he approached the crisis, the crash of 29 and what followed? And B, were the outcomes for, for President Franklin Roosevelt, who did push a lot of the New Deal programs, were they any better? Well, um, so we're asking now not what happened, but is the interpretation wrong? Yes, the interpretation in the school textbooks is wrong. So we worry about a Great Depression, but we don't really understand what happened, in part because our, our textbooks are wrong. And the myth, Jared, there, there are multiple myths of the Great Depression um, that we get from our textbooks. The myth to which Jared refers, the first myth is that 
Herbert Hoover, who became president in 1929 and served until uh, the beginning of 1933, um, was a free marketeer, a restrained government person, and his laissez-faire policy caused the Great Depression. That's that's kind of what we learn in school, right? Um, but Herbert Hoover, um, I would agree, uh, and the evidence suggests that Herbert Hoover did a lot of damage, but not because he was a, um, a free marketeer. He did the damage because he wasn't a free marketeer. So and when you go back and look at his actions, you'll see that for yourself. Two areas in which Herbert Hoover intervened negatively. One is he berated business so much it got scared. When the president berates business and says, this is your fault, you shouldn't trade this way or that way, there are consequences and scaring business is not a good idea. Think of now, businesses want confidence so they can dare to go back in the market. Um, another thing Herbert Hoover did, uh, which was the fashion at the time and has been understudied but clearly happened, was he bought into the theory that higher wages are the most important factor in a recovery. So we want to have very high wages. Um, and we, that was new for downturns. Usually in a downturn, what does an employer do? Think of your employer now. Well, his, his natural impulse is to lower wages because that's a humane thing to do. He wants to keep his people or she wants to keep her people. What in those days, it was uh, early Keynesianism or proto-Keynesianism, what, what Hoover believed and what he had learned um, in progressive school really was that if the worker um, makes more money, he'll buy his own car that he's making back and that will trigger economic activity. That's the same kind of talk that you hear with stimuli today. But what happened is, so therefore he exhorted business and business did what he did, sort of like President Trump exhorting now the authority is more exhorting than law. Sometimes he exhorted business not to drop wages. Um, he signed on to laws such as Davis-Bacon, which sounds almost forgotten, but effectively that put upward that law puts upward pressure on on wages. So unlike other downturns, in this downturns wait in this downturn wages did not go down as they might have. And therefore, what were employers doing to compensate for wages they could not afford to pay? They were rehiring fewer people or they were laying off more. I'm really paying well, but I only have half my staff. Um, so that's the big trade-off. And that contributed to the terrible unemployment that um, we know is the Great Depression. Yeah, and that unemployment was really sustained. I think that's a point that certainly in our conversations before that you try to make is just how long this thing lasted. I mean, I think something, you know, we have the perspective that for, for three months, the economic data has been terrible. We've basically been in a shutdown. The numbers are awful. But the numbers throughout the Great Depression were awful for year after year after year. This is something that went unabated, essentially, uh, for really a generation of workers. And I think that something that certainly you've written quite a bit about, something that I've heard stories from my grandparents about, is kind of the Great Depression within a Great Depression, that the years, the late 1930s, 1937 being particularly bad, but really those late 1930s were in some ways worse than the early 1930s. So after all these programs uh, were created, after all these measures were taken by uh, Herbert Hoover, by Franklin Roosevelt, uh, things were actually in some ways getting worse 
in the 1930s. And of course, you know, we had piled up the set. We had made all these changes to our government. Can you kind of talk about that and explain how things were wor or worse or just as bad? Oh, thank you, Jarrett. Um, I, I, we have a beautiful chart up. Can everyone see it? Um, I hope so. Anyway, this is the chart of unemployment in the 1930s. And as you can see, it was double digit just about all the time. The source for this, by the way, is Rich Vetter's Out of Work, a book I recommend. Um, but it's built off government data. Um, so, so you have double digit in unemployment going um, up to 25 plus. Here it says 27.9. And then coming back later in the decade. And what Jarrett is getting at is the this error of thinking wages need to be high no matter what for recovery. It was an error we repeated over and over again in the 1930s. It wasn't just Herbert Hoover. When President Roosevelt came along, uh, he created a law with a minimum wage or that, that fostered minimum wages everywhere. Um, and he also, uh, for example, signed the Wagner Act, which created the mighty, mighty unions. Today, um, we work under Taft-Hartley, a post-war labor law, which is a little neutered pussycat compared to the tiger that was the Wagner Act, the labor law signed uh, in 35 and beginning to be fell in 37. Um, so all those things and a few other me measures drove wages up and therefore un unemployment was higher than it might have been otherwise. You've heard the phrase from the Great Depression, nice work if you can get it. That's exactly what the 1930s were. Those who were paid felt like they had a pretty good money often, um, but a lot of people were not paid. Um, and you think of the stories uh, um, involving people. Uh, in my family, I had a, a member of the family who went to work every morning and never told anyone that there was no work. He just pretended to say, uh, be at work all day and then came home uh, with his lunchbox empty uh, for years because he didn't want to share the indignity of having lost his job with his wife. Um, uh, there, there's more to that story, but it, give, it gives you an idea. Anyway. This enduring unemployment, that's what made the Great Depression great. And um, I, I will add one last thing about this wage perversity, the wages being higher um, than they ought to be in a downturn. They were yet higher than that because we had deflation. So the, the big mean labor leader, say John L. Lewis, rests a high wage out of a struggling employer and he wins. He wins even more than he knows because by the time his workers get the pay that he um, arranged under his tough deal with the company, the money is worth more. Um, so, so that was a factor as well. One thing, I mean, obviously you have a deeper understanding of American economic history. There, there, there have been a series of what I mean. In old days, they used to call them financial panics. You know, the Panic of 1819. You know, the Panic of 1837. But there was never anything quite like this, correct? There was never anything that was so sustained uh, in American economic history before. I mean, I, from what you're saying, it sounds like this was a unique moment in the entire history of the United States. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, the other data point, we don't have a chart, but the other data line you'd like to follow is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The, the S&P wasn't a big thing then, the way it is now. 
So the Dow was it, and it's really nice data set because it goes all the way back um, into the preceding century. So you can fool around with it, uh, study it. Anyway, the Dow's high in 29, at the crash of 29, was 381. And uh, you know, most of us today uh, look at the market and they say it might get down to 20,000, it might get down to 23,000, but it'll be back when I finish college four years hence, or when I get my master's four years hence, or when I have my third child four years hence. There's a general expectation um, that while the market might crash now, it's going to come back well, you know, while we're still more or less uh, um, close to who we were when it crashed. The, the Dow in that instance did not come back. It didn't come back the entire 30s. It didn't even come back the 40s, which is a little messed up because the war was on. But anyway, it didn't come back. The Dow Jones Industrial Average did not reach its 29 peak until the 1950s. So that's a way of saying, um, wait a quarter century for the Dow to get back to where it was when your 401k looks so good in January 2020. Um, I don't think most Americans expect ever to have to wait a quarter century for, for the stock market to come back. That's why another reason the depression was great. Um, and Jarrett, you know, in his book has studied the myths of the Great Depression. Um, one of the, you know, things that's things that's very wrong about the, um, admiring the New Deal is that the New Deal was effectively anti-business. And business curled up and waited. It went into hibernation. That the new the New Deal was so unpredictable um, and uh, effectively any business, and therefore uh, the Great Depression. That's another factor. What was so severe? So there's a cost to government being the elephant in the room for years and years and years, especially for little businesses. You you see that today. Um, who benefited? Well, a big online vendor or Walmart. Walmart. Walmart sells flowers on Mother's Day, but the little florist was not allowed to sell flowers on Mother's Day. What was that about? Um, that was uh, in the 30s, the same thing. In the 1930s, uh, the, the government wrote a huge plan for handling the depression with the National Recovery Administration, and it was convenient for it to cut deals with big companies. The big companies, of course, wrote rules with the government that shut out the little guys. Uh, so it ended up being a syndicalist deal with big companies deciding what happens uh, in the New Deal. Yeah, kind of typical what we call crony capitalism, uh, for sure. I would like to remind the audience, we're getting some very good questions, uh, to please put your questions in the chat so that we can try to address those uh, at the end of the show, please. Uh, so one thing I'd like to talk about, Michelle, is some of you know the experiences of people you know at the time of the Great Depression. Something we we've talked about before is a lot of the bank failures. I mean, you have these stories from the Great Depressions of runs on the bank. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that worked and what exactly happened and how that killed? How a lot of small ba banks essentially went belly up, and you can talk about that. Yes, when I teach this, this the banks, we have what we call the killer slide, because everyone assumes that what happened in the 1930s, Americans lost their money. Uh, that is, the bank closed, and they all lost their money, and therefore we created deposit insurance. That, uh, that, that was why. 
But if you actually look at the data points, you'll see um, indeed great number of banks failed, over 30%, close to 40% of banks failed, but only 3% of people or 2% lost their money. That's because the banks that failed were the little ones. So this idea, um, there's a famous cartoon, um, I did save, but now I have no money. Uh, that wasn't the average man. Most people um, didn't lose much. Rural areas lost a lot because that's where the little, what we call unit banks were. And they, just as in It's a Wonderful Life, um, didn't have much to turn to. Maybe the bad, rich Mr. Potter in the town, that's it. They weren't really part of the Federal Reserve Network where they would be bailed out with liquidity. And that was a, a sort of structural problem we had with banks, with these unit banks, and which has since been altered. Now we have interstate banking. Um, but at the time, it was a, um, a, just um, very compelling, very little banks based on one little depositor base of people who all were in the same business, which might be uh, often was agriculture. Uh, so uh, so uh, nothing, no diversity to cushion what happened to that bank. Yeah, so one something I'd, I'd really like to talk about, because I think you've, you've pressed this issue, and I think it's very important as far as our comparison uh, to crisis today. Uh, you've written about, and, and a few others, although many Americans don't know much about it, uh, about the recession uh, of 1920 and 1921, which I think if you, if you ask most Americans if they know anything about this, they probably you know, wouldn't know. Um, but a very severe recession that, that followed uh, World War One, and very importantly, of course, the Spanish flu as well. I mean, the, the 1918 Spanish flu, which killed about 600,000 Americans, 50 million worldwide, maybe more, uh, that just after World War One and the flu, there was a recession. Uh, but how we came out of that recession was very different from the 1930s. And certainly the policies uh, of the presidential administration at that time and the ethos, you could say, were very different. Can you explain, uh, first of all, what the 1920-21 recession was, and also uh, that difference in the ethos and how those were treated? Well, each of these decades has a lesson. And Jarrett, you're right. The, the decade that's most relevant to us, in a way, is not the 30s, but the 20s. Um, we had some trouble. We came out of World War I. The government had too much debt. Um, workers were pretty unhappy, they were striking, and we had the Spanish influenza. So a, a difficult time, um, also a time of high taxes. What should the government do? Should it stimulate and give workers money so they can buy the car? Or should it, do, or should it get out of the way and let business take the lead? Um, the, the government response and the Fed response were the opposite of what we would do today. The Fed tightened pro-cyclically. That is, the, the market was tightening for money and the Fed tightened further. That's, that's not what you're supposed to do according to uh, economic teachings um, if, you're, if you're studying now or you're a banker now. It's the opposite. You're supposed to be counter-cyclical, um, leaning, you know, counter the wind as in a sailboat. The other thing though that the, the government itself did, um, it didn't spend, it actually cut back. So there was a negative stimulus, so to speak. Uh, it, 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 the government cut back spending. Oh my gosh, 
how can you withdraw money or, or, or fail to spend more, fail to stimulate in a downturn that's severe? And uh, this downturn was severe. It was called a depression. In some places, there was unemployment in the early 20s of over 15% in some places. It, it, we just had a hard time. But then um, the government also sent a signal we're going to get out of the way of business. Um, this was effectively the Harding-Coolidge campaign of 1920. When I was a student and I heard that Harding called for normalcy, I thought, what a stupid word. What does he mean, normalcy? But what he meant was common sense situation where the parameters are the usual. We allow business to operate. We reduce burdens on business where we can. We don't tax too heavily. Um, that's what Harding's normalcy was. And Harding and Coolidge coming in in 19. 21 committed to reducing taxes. They said the only direction taxes can go is downward, notwithstanding a heavy debt. And taxes, uh, business suddenly knew taxes were always going to be going down, and they did. Uh, then, uh, as you know, Coolidge, here's his picture. Coolidge became president when Harding passed away and continued this policy. And the result was a very positive economy, a very strong economy. The roaring 20s really did roar. They were not just a bubble in Great Gatsby's, in Jay Gatsby's champagne glass. Um, we had a wonderful period. People got jobs. Productivity zoomed ahead so that um, people had to work less. One of the gifts of the 1920s is what we call Saturday, because uh, Saturday used to be one of the six work days of the week, and suddenly it became this free day. Uh, that was the 1920s. People, Americans got indoor plumbing in that decade. So, Jared, it was it was just a wonderful decade in terms of progress for the country, following a policy of government holdback. We can distinguish that um, as the opposite of the 1930s government policy, the New Deal, heavy hand, or the government policy in England um, in the 20s, the UK. In the 20s, the UK took the progressive route. Uh, and they had terrible unemployment. If anyone here is an expert in the UK, you'll know that the UK had double-digit unemployment for two decades, not one. And a part of that was monetary, another discussion, but a part of that was the progressive laws. Wow, yeah, you know, I really remark, that it's remarkable that period, the 1920s, so, so much of modern life, the things that we take for granted now, really started to come into being. I mean, even the idea of having a family vacation where you take your car and you, you take some time off and go, you know, that was something that was mostly just wealthy people could do that. In the 1920s, you know, you had middle-class families who were able to afford that, who were able to do that, really a, a time of remarkable prosperity for, for the average American. And this is following, you know, the most one of the most terrible wars in our history, following a, a pandemic, following all these seemingly incredible crises you know, you had this kind of prosperity that came in its wake. And I think it's great that you've highlighted the careers of, of Harding and especially Coolidge, because as I, I understood just like you, that when you learn about these things in high school and college, you learn about Harding and Coolidge as kind of the do-nothing presidents. They're seen as, as bland and unremarkable uh, compared to the genius that was uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Dealers. And I think a lot of your histories uh, really show that you know, Coolidge and Harding had a different ethos that led to some very, very positive outcomes that a lot of our history books, certainly in the ethos that they promote, are, are very different than the actual record. Uh, certainly would have been different than the perspectives of the people at that time. So uh, one thing I, I'd like to address, too, is 
you know, obviously the 1930s were terrible economically. We had, you know, World War II that followed, and, and we really had a quarter of a century of very little economic growth. What, what eventually pulled the United States out of that Great Depression mindset? What, what pulled this country out of it? Was it World War II? Because you hear that a lot. You hear that it was World War II that, that kind of brought us out of depression. Can you talk about that? Well, I first want to give a plug for Coolidge. Thank you for plugging him. I want to expand the plug. He was a great president. He believed uh, the chief business of the American people is business. He believed in economic activity as a palliative for trouble. Uh, he was cautious. He didn't. Um, uh, and he believed in the states. He was a strong federalist. So I hope uh, people will take a look at Calvin Coolidge get to know him. I'm the chairman of the Coolidge Foundation, get to know the Coolidge Foundation. We, uh, I, I, I will mention we even have a project at the foundation right now by which you can help edit his papers. Um, we have a sort of uh, citizen library at work um, and comment on his papers. And why you should care is because a lot of Coolidge speeches addressed issues that have to do with the COVID situation now, what to do in a downturn, how to save, why saving is important in a downturn, what about family, um, all those things. Um, the second question you had, Jarrett, was did World War II end the Great Depression? And that's what we heard from our mother, right? Uh, in fact, uh, Democrats are, um, or progressives are often apologizing, they'll say, well, in, in a kind of low voice, only the, the war ended the depression, i.e. Franklin Roosevelt, didn't, and they're embarrassed about that. The war didn't, I, I think the relevant question about the Great Depression is not how did the war end it, if there was mega spending, um, but why did that gosh darn depression last all the way to that war? So, so today we did something super dramatic. We turned off the economy like a faucet. Now, um, it, 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 Roosevelt turned on something like a faucet. Um, federal spending went 10, 20, 30 percent. I don't have the chart of GDP in the matter of minutes. Um, so that felt healthy, just like getting a transfusion feels healthy to a sick person. Um, but it was, you know, the test of true economic health is what you do in peacetime and what result you get in peacetime. And the main thing about the peacetime that followed World War II, and the reason I think we didn't continue the Depression was there was a general consensus that the New Deal had gone too far, a hard-earned consensus. And, uh, you know, example I mentioned earlier, and it's a very important one, some of you are in right-to-work states, some of you are in union states, the Taft-Hartley Act, the union law, created the possibility of the right to work state. It created that opt out because it saw, lawmakers saw that the Wagner Act, which made every state a union state, no matter what it wanted, was too oppressive. So suddenly um, there were various lightnings, uh, um, unburdenings, uh, not all the way, but some unburdenings um, after World War II. And also that consensus, you know what? A really heavy social democratic New Deal is not right for the United States. Uh, and I, I would argue that's why we didn't repeat the depression. Yeah, I, I think that uh, certainly many of the, the kind of mythos of the New Deal persist to this day. And a question I'd like to ask you 
a little bit to wrap up here. Uh, Ronald Reagan used to say, he liked to say that the nine scariest words in the English language were, we're from the government, we're here to help. Uh, do you think that that's, that's generally been true and you think it's still true today? I think it should be. I mean, I think it should be. We always say that um, natural disasters or um, or an event like a pandemic are the worst test for free marketeers because what? It's a health disaster. Oh my gosh, suspend all freedom, all free market ideas. But what we've seen in the recent crisis is government knows something, but it doesn't know everything. Government clearly didn't know about masks. Um, government didn't know that maybe ventilators weren't right for some of the COVID patients. Government had its learning curve too. And what's important is respect for the private sector. In Great Society, my book about the 60s, basically what I say is government, I show is government was very ambitious for another reason, to make America a just society. Um, and the question only was, is it government that's going to make America a just society or the private, a, a great society or the private sector? And what happened in the 1960s and 70s and 80s is the private sector delivered a lot and the government delivered less than expected. And that's where we are kind of now, isn't it, Jared? It's time for the private sector to be allowed to lead. Absolutely. Uh, one thing before I turn it over to the questions from the audience, uh, what can the private sector do right now? Obviously, you know, these are trying times. We'd like to find some solutions that aren't simply something from the federal government. Can you think of something that for the private sector can do right now to help us get out of this, what will be certainly an economic crisis in the coming months? Um, well, uh, be open when you can be open. I won't say when it's safe because we are none of us ever completely safe, but when it's less risky. Um, and uh, the, the private sector, well, I, I couldn't give advice to the private sector, but the private sector is furiously innovating and it's finding solutions to a lot of these problems. So what the citizenry can do is respect the power of the private sector to make decisions. Um, you know, across the nation, we're trying to decide whether summer camps should be closed or open. All parents who send their kids to summer camp are wondering. The truth is nobody knows. So some wisdom may actually come from the camp itself. It might not necessarily come from the county health office or from the federal government, right? Respect localism, respect um what communities are doing and let communities decide for themselves um when and where to open what absolutely so the first question i'd like to go with here is from Renette sharma from accenture uh who asks will issues with china and the origins of covid19 lead to more protectionism and causing a recovery to take longer um thank you for that question um in the 1930s, uh, we slapped on a new protectionist law called Smoot-Hawley, and uh, that um, it, it made matters worse, Smoot-Hawley. Uh, so I believe, yes, the U.S. will, there'll be new sympathy for protectionism in the United States because fear breeds protectionism, and yes, that will slow our economy. So another one here, we're getting this from, from multiple people, so I'll just kind of lump this into one. 
Uh, in The Forgotten Man, you highlight stories about a number of programs designed by the government to help, and you show that they really harmed precisely those people they were supposed to help. Can you give us an example? Are you worried about some of the programs you're hearing about today that might have you worried? Well, it's the micro-regulation today that reminds of the 1930s and got in the way. You can send a business a check, but you might not send the right amount, and you might uh, encumber that business by giving it a, a lot of paperwork to handle the check, to decide when to pay it back. What's a forgivable loan anyway, right? It's sort of a, an oxymoron. Uh, so it's a loan or it's a gift. You know, so so uh, it, that was very 1930s. And then the intense regulation regarding health. I want to mention one example I wrote about in The Forgotten Man because it's so darn controversial. It was even attacked by a Harvard law professor recently. And it was attacked, you know, well past 10 years when it was written. Um, there was a little chicken company in Brooklyn that butchered chickens one way, the ethnic way. It was a Jewish kosher chicken company. And the federal government, and it's it's uh, basically, you know, um, it's, it, it's NRA industry leaders uh, and its regulators um, came to the business and said, you're slaughtering the chicken the wrong way. You can't let people pick their chicken. You have to the person just has to take the chicken that comes in his hand because if you let the people pick their chicken, that will slow recovery. It's absolutely illogical. Um, I mean, now when we go, I mean, the idea that choice slows economic growth, tell that to someone who orders at Starbucks. Choice uh, creates economic growth at Starbucks because people like all the options. So anyway, that was the theory, and the poor little business got in trouble, and it was called ALA Schechter Poultry, and it almost went to jail, uh, and it appealed. Um, it had violated all the rules of the, of the federal government and of the chicken code, the poultry code for its area, and that case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found for the chickens. That is, it said, this, this big regulatory law is unconstitutional. It's the wrong kind of delegation. It's it violates interstate commerce. Um, you know, some of this is not interstate. The chickens only live in one place, and that is Brooklyn, so they're not interstate commerce, and so on and so forth. And it's a wonderful case about a well-meaning law because there was a huge health component to the chicken regulation um, to, as well. A well-meaning law supposedly looking out for the health of the the customer that actually did the opposite. Why people wanted to pick their chicken was in those days they had a lot of disease. Um, there weren't antibiotics available for every chicken. Chickens weren't bathed in antibiotics. So people wanted to pick a healthy chicken, right? For for their families or for their restaurant. Anyway, I'm going into this in such detail because it reminds us of today when all of a sudden very nitty regulations sometimes have the opposite effect of what they're meant to. Um, I'm talking now about COVID regulations. That was an example of, of trouble in the New Deal. It's, it's amazing looking back on the sheer power of the NRA, not to be confused with the modern National Rifle Association, but you know, even looking back, going through old movies from that era, you seeing the kind of the Blue Eagle stamp and how much 
really control over the American economy this thing had. I mean, it's something that it's almost hard to relate now and how big uh, the, the staffing of this agency was and how many controls it exerted even over the small decisions uh, in people's lives, I think is truly staggering. Of course, it was invalidated by the Supreme Court. It's something that's an interesting legacy of, of that era. Uh, so I'll, I'm going to take one more question here before we wrap up. Um, this comes from Alan Roth. Uh, says, today, fear of dying from the virus is a real problem. Even if businesses open up, uh, lots of people won't come out. What role did fear play in the economy during the, the Depression? That's a great question. Um, I, I don't know about health fear. During the Depression, uh, there wasn't that great Spanish influenza but there was another kind of fear that's related. Fear is when people suspend disbelief. They say, oh, I'm just going to believe anything because now I'm panicked, right? Um, I will say the Dust Bowl was a good example or floods because it was like a, a decade of Job. One trial after another, uh, the Dust Bowl covered the entire plains with, with dirt. You couldn't go outside. You couldn't grow. Um, crops failed, uh, and it seemed as sent from God. It wasn't sent from God. In fact, in part, it was the result of perverse agriculture policy. The, the way we dug up the plains facilitated the Dust Bowl. So th the answer to fear is not hope. The answer to fear is logic. And we are logical beings, uh, and we need to respect our own logic and proceed accordingly. But that, that's a good question, Mr. Roth. I, I think there was a lot of fear, um, but of a different nature. Fear gives politicians power. You think of wars, the politician um, says the enemy is going to attack or has Pearl Harbor. People line up behind the leader. The politician says COVID is a pandemic. It is, it's true. People line up behind authority. Uh, but you always have to ask yourself, what is the cost uh, to freedom in the future? Absolutely. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to add to this discussion before we wrap up that, you know, message that you'd like to give people, especially your knowledge and, you know, those of us now are worried about, you know, the potential for depression. Is there any message you'd like uh, for the listeners to, to wrap this thing up? My message is education. That's educate yourself and educate others. Jarrett has a wonderful book where he basically assails the myths that our kids get in school. It's important because what the teachers get away with in terms of textbook is really embarrassing. They, um, now, I mean, if we'd had this conversation 10 years ago, I would have said that, but now the classrooms are, are much, much worse than they were even 10 years ago in terms of the content the kids get. And then educate yourself. I mean, that educate yourself. Because the truth is out there, um, this, these data points are not my opinion or Jarrett's opinion or Heritage's opinion. They're the real data points from the period. Um, go find the data and see what you make of the data. And then you'll have a better understanding of, of the 20th century economy and what, what could help us now. That's excellent. I love that comment about self-education. Honestly, your, your, your books helped me very much when I was in in college and later and understand uh, the, the, the New Deal era and, and Calvin Coolidge, who I, I have now enormous respect for. I didn't really understand what a great president and great man he was, uh, I think. And hopefully that kind of self-education, a lot of Americans you know, at this time can educate themselves to understand our history, to what's happened in the past, so we can make better decisions 
about our future, which I think this is really what this is about right now. We're, we're dealing with a, an economic, potential economic crisis after a pandemic, a, a, a terrible pandemic. But the decisions we make uh, will determine, you know, how our future goes, you know, and, and if this is going to be something that we're dealing with, you know, in the next generation, too, uh, as a result of this, or something that we recover relatively quickly. We're going to have a depression in 1930s, or are we going to potentially have another roaring 20s of, of another century? And, and those are very important things uh, to talk about and understand right now. So, so thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, Michelez, this was a, a great discussion. I, I'm going to turn things over back to Andy so he can kind of wrap up the show. But thank you so much, and thank you to the audience uh, for being here and listening in. Wonderful. Thank you, Jarrett and Amity. Thank you, Jarrett, for, for hosting this conversation today. Clearly, there are important lessons from American history where well-meaning laws and regulations have the opposite effect. We ought to want to learn from our history and apply those lessons as society opens up and economic activity returns during the times today. Uh, thank you again, Amity, for your comments and your continued scholarship. Amity's books and writings can be found at amityschlaes.com. You can also find more about the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation at coolidgefoundation.org, and Jarrett's writings are at dailysignal.com. We want to thank you for tuning in. There's a short survey that you'll receive via email. Please give us feedback. We want to know what you liked, what you'd like to see more of, and anything different. Um, and you can also visit resourcebank.org for more, uh, more of these sessions, uh, both on demand and archives and ones to come. Uh, in closing, I just want to comment that there's been a remarkable effort across the Heritage Foundation during this time. Our National Coronavirus Commission has published 179 recommendations, both at the federal, state, and local level to help secure lives and livelihoods, both very important during this time. And uh, across that, they've done thousands, our experts have done thousands of TV, radio, podcast interviews, and media mentions. And all this research can be found at heritage.org coronavirus. So we encourage you to check that out. In the meantime, check out Amity's books, her wonderful scholarship, and Jarrett's writings. Thank you everybody for joining us today.